listener production. G'day, it's Rusty here, all set for part two of my podcast with Ryan Storey, chairman and CEO from legendary supercars team Dick Johnson Racing. If you've arrived at the start line here and haven't given part one a run yet, jump back to the garage library and fire it up. From an industry-leading carbon-neutral program to his early gravitation to computing and analytics that put him on a path to working with presidents and prime ministers. We also joined the dots on how this devoted fan ended up connecting with his hero and some chance moments along the way. We begin part two with the difficult conversation that almost led to DJR turning the lights out, the start of a hard-fought climb back to the top of the ladder. You had the very difficult conversation with DJ about um, having looked at it, uh, looked at the state that it was in. I mean, it was remarkable, as you say, to think that it had gone from the highs of the Courtney title win just a few years ago to being, you know, heavily um, debt laden and and more. Um, But I think, mate, I'm right in saying you you basically said, turn the lights off. It's Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But how did he react to that? There, there were two conversations that took place at Dick's unit at Ephraim, where he used to live. What they didn't realise is that every asset they owned had a lien on it, including including the DJR headquarters, including everything, including the unit that we were sitting in. And they didn't understand or know or have a full grasp of the situation. So it was on that basis. I just said, look, I don't see any other way out of this. And DJ said to me, he said, look, I don't know how to do anything else. I said, well, I'm, look, by that time I'd already moved up to Queensland, but what had happened from, and just to give you some background, that after Indy in 2012, I stepped back from the team completely um, and handed back my hard card. I had a disagreement with management at the time and stepped right back and then had those meetings with DJ just to give him the real the real context of what was going on and said, I'll do what, what's in your best interest and look after you. And he was adamant about looking after staff as well. That that was, I mean, that that being a priority for me has come from it being a, the absolute number one priority for him. A necessity, yeah. Hmm. And and yeah, that was my advice was to shut it down and, and to, to basically, yeah, there was basically no other option. And he said, look, this is no, no in, fact, in fact, not dissimilar to 2020. He said, look, this is all, all I know how to do and I want to keep going. And like I said, I, I just had one condition. I said, uh, like I said, I'd already moved up to Brisbane at that point in time or to, go, to the Gold Coast at that point in time. I said, the day we have a disagreement is the day I walk away. So I'm never, I will be, I'll be transparent with you on everything. But the day that we can't, I mean, we can have, I mean, we can have disagreements, but if we can't work it out, that's the day I walk away. And We've never had a disagreement to this day, and that's how we got through. And that's how we got through things. To be to be honest with you, and the harder part of that conversation was then saying to 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 Dick, Jill, and Steve, "I can't do this uh, with Steve driving the car. We need to take Stephen out of the car." And Steve, to his eternal credit, he understood and appreciated that. Dick and Jill weren't weren't uh, weren't ready for it. They weren't ready for it, and and Dick was. 
And he is to this day, he's, he was gutted that he, he felt like he he hadn't given Stephen the opportunity that he deserved given his natural abilities, which I think is is, is fair in, in a lot of respects. But, uh, but that was a difficult conversation, but one that Steve immediately understood. And then in the early days of 2013, Steve worked in, in with me hand in hand. And in the early days, it was, I was writing up scripts for uh, call sheets and scripts for Dick and for Steve to call all of our partners and, and, and people associated with the team every day. I'd, they'd have a daily call list. And for those two years, if you go on Speed Cafe or supercars.com or any of those places, you'll see DJR spokesman because I was <laughs> I still wanted to be that background person. I still wanted to be the, the person behind the scenes, the, the, the two I see. And that was what I envisaged, that, that I could help Steve with business. He ha- obviously had an understanding of motor racing, but we could continue the Johnson dynasty. And then Steve got his enduro drive with Erebus and it naturally made sense for him to step back from DJR at that point in time. And uh, and to his his credit, he's gone on to build Team Johnson and they've had uh, tremendous success in the Touring Car Masters Championship. I think they've won it three times. And uh, and in building the XD TCM car that, that they race now, Steve had a couple of wins at Bathurst there, which was just fantastic great and just wonderful for the whole Johnson family, given the 40th anniversary of the 1981 win and then effectively the replica that's still a race car was out there uh, out there winning races as well it was pretty special so uh, so I think that uh, I think things worked out the way that they the way that they needed to and and certainly in 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 the best way possible all things considered crazy conversation Ryan to think that lifelong diehard Dick Johnson fan sits down with his hero and tells him hey we might be best to pull the pin on this thing, to to call it a day. And you've turned it around, mate, to think that you, in a relatively short period of time, were able to, through that management that you talked about, ensuring that that, that sponsors and, 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 and people were with you and that anyone that, um, you know, was owed money, you put a, a structure in place uh, and put staff first and foremost. I mean, you, you got it to a point then that it became a... An attractive proposition, ultimately, to someone like like Roger Penske, mate. It was remarkable. That's true. No, thank you very much for that, Rusty. I mean, look, I can't take all the credit there. DJR has always had wonderful people working for it, and Dick and Jilly and the family have been remarkable. But Ron Young, in particular, the late Steve Brayback. There's 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 so many people who are a part of of the success that we've had in that in the period that I've been around. The Ben Croaks of this world. Uh, there, there's 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 a number of people who have been absolutely key but the thing I'm most proud of is that you know just pay pays have always been you know the, the staff have never been paid a day late or a dollar short uh, which is which is good and we've maintained every you know we maintained every payment agreement that we put in place and again in those early days none of these suppliers and it was and it was and there were more teams up here um, Erebus hadn't relocated to uh, Erebus hadn't relocated to Melbourne at that point in time, so the Gold Coast Motorsport ecosystem, ecosystem and ecostructure, such as it was, when you get a call from Ryan Story from DJR, they're like, "Who the hell are you?" So I was making personal guarantees and paying people out of my own account for various things, and and then and then we did the same, even uh, even even as the even in the lead up through 2014, uh, on the it was on the I think the 9th of May. Sorry, it must have been the. F- Actually, I think it might have been the first of May, twenty fourteen. Um, I'd have to confirm the date when Roger uh, 
Bud Denker, Randall Seymour, Tim Sindrick, myself, Dick and Steve sat in the room and agreed to the deal on the handshake. At that point in time, we'd, we'd, we'd cleaned things right up and, and we're in a position to, to, to do this properly. And they saw it also as an opportunity to help rebuild um, a, a, a truly successful, legendary, iconic team in the series. So I think it made sense to those folks on that level as well. They weren't inheriting a dog, uh, but they, were, they had the opportunity to help rebuild um, re- rebuild a team to, to, its, to its glorious days of old. And that path comes about by a chance moment. I think it was, wasn't it Richie Swan getting a business card, maybe at, at a Gold Coast event? You've kept that business card, I think, and, and it literally set the wheels in motion for one of the doyens of the automotive industry to become a part of your operation, didn't it? It was. It was. It was a fellow by the name of Don Hansen, and he worked for. Um, he worked. For, he he had worked for Transpacific, and in 2013, Penske Automotive Group, which is the listed Penske entity. So there's Penske Corporation, which is privately held by the family, and there's Penske Automotive Group, which is listed on the New York Stock Exchange. So Penske Auto- Automotive Group bought the transportation arm from Transpacific, which was the Western Star and MAN and Dennis Eagle truck distributorships here in Australia. And later, um, later, uh, Penske Automotive Group also acquired MTU Detroit Diesel Australia from uh, from Daimler as well. But uh, yeah, Don Hansen, who was working for Transpacific, was now working for Penske. He was the head of marketing. He handed his business card to our team manager at the time, Richie Swan, who's a massive part of why DJR's still around today. I mean, the work that he put into the team, he he worked tirelessly through 2012, 2013, 2014, and he's had a long history with DJR back to the Sierra days. He's 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 a big part of, of, of DJR's history, no question. But simply handed him a business card and, and we all took it with a pinch of salt. We didn't really think anything of it. And then... I spoke to Don about a week later and he basically gave me the full sales pitch and said, Roger, will call you in the next few days. And I got off the phone and went, yeah, right. Because as, as you know, in motorsport, um, in, in any pit lane uh, at any given race weekend, you could be handed a business card from any person claiming to be anything. <laughs> so it's, it's one of those. Unfortunately, these, these, you know, these things can happen from time to time. And look, I've, 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 I can put my hand up. I've been caught out a couple of times spot, uh, signing partnership agreements in days gone by with uh, companies that uh, haven't been around all that long. It's, uh, it's, it's something that happens in, in all sports. But... Uh, yeah, I, I, I took it with a pinch of salt. And then it was I was due to go to hospital to have major surgeries, quite considerable surgery. And uh, and I was uh, not, it was not certain I was going to come out the other side of it. But uh, basically I put together, I put, it, I put a heap of notes of things, things in place and, and basically had shared all this information with, uh, with Dick and with Steve Brayback and with, uh, with Campbell Little, who was with us at the time. And then the day I was at Paradise Point where I was living at the time, getting ready to head into hospital, and my phone rings and it's a US number. And I answer the phone and it's, this is Roger Penske here. You do the year right. <laughs> I'm like... Oh, hello, uh, Mr. Pesky. It's Ryan Story. Uh, wonderful to hear from you. And I sort of, I, I played along until I was absolutely convinced it was him. The, the plus one was a bit of a giveaway, but I still was a bit, 
mean, this is a lead. This is a this is I'm this sure. is a guy who's up there with Enzo Ferrari when it comes to icons of motorsport. Yes. And he gave me the full sales pitch, like it was the full court press sales pitch. This is what this is what Penske can do for DJR. This is our business structure. This is our success in racing. This is this is what we want to do. We want to use racing as a way to market our businesses. We've got growth. We've got growth expansion plans and. I want, I want to meet you. I want you and you and your team to come over. I'll send the jet. We'll slot, you know, we'll organise it all. We want you to come over in a couple of weeks. And I'm frantically taking notes while all this is happening because, again, I'm about to jump in the car and head to hospital and I'm not 100% certain I'm going to be coming back. So I'm writing all these notes. And I just couldn't believe it. I just It was one of those pinch yourself moments. I was talking on the phone to Roger Penske who wanted to basically partner us in DJR and wanted us to be part of the Penske empire and the Penske family. It was nothing short of extraordinary. So once I'd finished taking all these notes, and this was, this was a hangover from my political days, but um, you can get these great post-it notes, which are they're a bit, they're double the standard size and they've got uh, um, line markings on them. And it was a bit, of a bit of a trademark of mine that I'd have thousands of these post-it notes and I'd always write, write notes on them. I took about six notes from the call and took photos of them and emailed and texted them to uh, to DJ to Stephen to Campbell, <laughs> which included which included Roger's <laughs> phone number when he wanted us to be there. And then when I came out of surgery, I was everything was all good. I had the computer. I was communicating with him by email, um, and we put all things in motion. But I I was absolutely insistent that no, please do not send the jet. We'll fly a commercial. Um, they offered to pay for that, which I thought was incredibly kind of them. Um, but uh, I later learned that, that they were actually quite impressed that we turned down the jet. Apparently not many people do that. Um, I think uh, the, my fellow passengers were probably not as pleased that I'd turned down the private jet. It just didn't sit right with me to do that. It just didn't sit right with me to do that. But um, I later learned just through having a close friendship with Tim that it was all sort of thrust upon him and you know, he, before we met with them, he'd read the supercars operations manual, but it was completely foreign to them. And, and I was to later learn that they turned down the Ford GT program, which Chip Ganassi took up, to race supercars instead. So, what a what an incredible what an incredible turn of fortune for us! And to think that um, that Roger Penske picked uh, Dick Johnson Racing over over uh, Le Mans. Uh, program and look, I mean, he, and his 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 primary reason for it was that uh, supercars suited his business interests more, and that his 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 dream and and he said it many times publicly and and privately. To be honest with you, has been to win Le Mans outright, and I think that he'll have his opportunity to do that with the deal that he has now um, in place with Porsche. I think there's no question that uh, in in a couple of years' time, I'd, I'd love for nothing more than to see. Uh, to see Team Penske or Team 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 Penske Porsche win at Le Mans, that would be just for, I'd just for I'd love I'd I just love for that for Roger because he's such an incredible person. I'd just I'd love for that that I'd love for him to have that. But uh, that, that's that's how it happened. Yeah, so I took took down all these notes and then uh, it was about ten days later we we're on a plane. I'm in unbelievable goddamn pain. Like it was just unreal. Just I should not have travelled. It was the dumbest thing I ever ever done in my life. And so we all flew over. 
um, before we were, we were there for five days. Uh, for the first four... We're, talk, we're talking Moore, Mooresville yeah, here too, mate, yes, aren't we? That's where you yeah, went. So yeah, we flew, yeah, flew to yeah, Mooresville. For the yeah. first four days, we had nothing locked in. Um, Tim had arranged for us to go to the NASCAR Hall of Fame the day before we'd go to uh, to Penske Way in Mooresville, to, to the Team Penske facility. Um, but for the first first three days, I stayed in bed at the hotel and didn't move. I was just in that much pain. And then we went to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, which was a pretty cool experience. And I've subsequently been there since. I was there for um, there for uh, uh, Roger's induction into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I was there for the Team Penske 50 celebrations. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate to have been there a couple of times. And then on the Friday, we went out to uh, Team Penske's HQ, sat in their boardroom, which had a a Marlborough Team Penske IndyCar wind tunnel model mounted on the wall and had a number of trophies around the room. It was a very Penske room, precise, just everything in its place, just pristine and perfect. And the expectation that I had was that I was just, I was nothing in this meeting. And I later learned they were, I later learned from their side, they were confused that there were four of us in the room. They were like, why are four people here? Like, who's who owns the place? Who runs the place? Why are there four people? That, that was the question that they asked internally and we, we jokingly talked about afterwards. But basically, they'd reached out to me as the guy who was running the team, but I didn't think I was qualified to go over and have a meeting with Roger Penske and Tim Sindrick. So to me, it made sense to have Dick and Steve because the three of us were effectively partners in the team. And it made sense to bring Campbell because he was he was our technical director and he could answer all the tech questions. Then we get into the room and I'm the one answering all the questions. And then over time I built up a rapport and a relationship with Tim that was 100% built on trust. So they came out to... Um, uh, Tim brought out Jamie Allison, who was then the head of Ford Motorsports globally, um, for the Homebush at the end of 2013. And at that point in time, Penske's interest was well known. So every team bar one had sent them a pitch. And that, that the House of Eights was the only one that didn't, but every other team in pit lane sent them a pitch. And the reason why they went with us was because of the trust relationship we'd built, the fact that we were in Queensland, and the fact that that in Dick they had a household name and an ambassador that was going to give them credibility almost instantly. And also for them, the the the, the ability to be part of this rebuilding structure of this, uh, this great motor racing team. You are missing a little piece of the puzzle, I reckon, there, and that is that you snuck Roger in for a look. I think the staff were all given the afternoon off or something or other. He came and had <laughs> he came and had a look at the facility. And he, he half fell in love with it because it reminded him of, uh, of another time in IndyCar for him, did it not? It did. It did. It reminded him of uh, the... So before... So currently, uh, currently the IndyCar program and the NASCAR program and the what, what was the Acura Sports Car program and will be the Porsche Sports Car program are all under one roof. It's an old Panasonic air conditioning factory, I believe, but... It's an enormous facility. And Tim at, the, Tim, at the time of the merger, was he, he was the president of Team Penske, the IndyCar team, and Penske Racing South, the NASCAR team, was separate. But where the IndyCar team was based was in Reading, Pennsylvania. And 10 Emory Street Stapleton reminded both Tim and Roger of Reading, simply because everything had its place. And when Dick and Wayne Caddick built 10 Emory Street back in 1998, 
they, it was the first purpose-built motor racing facility in the country. So everything had a place by design. And when Roger did his sneaky tour in, there, there were a couple of sneaky tours. There were, there were sneaky tours while we were negotiating and putting a deal in place. And then there were sneaky tours after we made the deal before we made the announcement. And then there was more public tours after the announcement was made. But one of the things that Roger wanted to do, and he taught us very early on, is that if you get the presentation right, everything else follows. And, and I've maintained that to this very day. And it's absolutely true. So one of the things that, that Roger did, and I ran around him like the, like remember those old cartoons where you've got the lap dog running around after the big dog sort of following? And again, <laughs> it's, my, it's, my, it's my natural inclination to be the two I see and to be, that's, that's my natural, that's my default position is to be the, 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 is to be the, the, is to be the bloke making, making it happen, not necessarily the bloke formulating the, formulating the big picture and, and, and hitting the hitting the go button. So I was more than happy fulfilling this role. So I was following around behind Roger and he was saying all these things that he wanted modified um, to effectively do a complete refurbishment of the facility. And then when he subsequently saw it afterwards, he was blown away and, and uh, Brian Robertson and his team and uh, Brian Wells, who was the facilities manager at Penske, they did a wonderful job. Um, and in fact, we're about to do it. We're about to give uh, the outside of the building a fresh coat of paint and and some other upgrades to the building. I've I've spent quite a bit of money this year just on capital investments, uh, just to, with CNC machining and some other things, just to 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 again future proof the business, and also just because it's the right thing for us to do to invest back into the into the business and to and to and and especially given that I've consolidated some of my other interests within the DJR entity. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll give the thing a fresh coat of paint, and uh, there'll be a couple of other surprises in store. And uh, we hope to be able to have the museum open and some interactive displays and things in 2022. Hey, there is a little um, aspect of the timeline here that I'm not sure of the detail on, and you might be able to, to fill in the blanks for me. So somewhere here, um, Roger and, and maybe Tim Sindrick uh, are at a, a NASCAR meet. I don't know whether it's 2013 or maybe even before that. I'm not sure, but they tap loosely Marcus Ambrose on the shoulder and say, "Hey, we're thinking about doing this." Um, we hear you might be um, tempted to go home, and if you if you are, you know, would you be a part of it and so on? Where in the mix of the discussions did the name Ambrose first pop up, and where did you get a sense that that might be part of the plan? I, I'm not entirely sure of the precise timing um, between when I first spoke to Roger and when Roger and TC spoke to Marcus. I think that it was afterwards because I, I believe it was only afterwards that, that, that TC was in the loop with the, what RP wanted to do in terms of supercars and in terms of the Australian business. But basically from day one, when there were serious conversations, they took place with Marcus. In fact, Marcus warned them off DJR. He just said, look, they're, you know, they're a basket case. You don't want to go near DJR. And, and, and what happened as a consequence of that is that they'd separately hired uh, John Crennan, who famously was a co-founder of uh, HSV and HRT and, and worked for Tom Walkinshaw for all those years and, and, for, and with the Kellys as well and, and for Holden and is just an automotive legend. And he was... He, John, John, I mean, if, if, you, if, if, if we're telling the official story of DJR Team Penske or Penske's involvement in supercars, Nick Hughes, who became our technical director, Brad Eyes, who had worked for Penske and IndyCar in the US, and John Crennan were the first three employees. 
So John was basically tasked if they were to start a team from scratch, which was one of the options on the table. Supercars were prepared to provide them with some wrecks to start from scratch and John would effectively establish the operation, but their preference was to go it alone. So they had John meet with me to effectively, uh, as it was a, the way it was, <laughs> it was, it was sold to me by Tim and Tim, Tim's, Tim's a brilliant leader. It was, it was sold to me as, oh, we'd love for you to talk to John because we think it, there's a great opportunity for us to work with him, particularly on the commercial side of the business. But John was given very strict instructions. Eyeball the bloke. We want to know if he's any good. We want your opinion on it, on him. And I later saw the email, and with every, with all parties' permission, I later saw the email that uh, that John sent back. And in typical Creno style, it was it was it was comprehensive, and and I think that was what sealed the deal. Uh, we had a very good rapport. I think that John saw that I had a reasonable grasp of business and of motorsport, and a clear direction of what the team could do and where it could go, and where and 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 also I think. I think, too, a part of what made DJR Team Penske so successful was that was oversharing, I suppose. Because I think there's nothing worse than... I sort of tried to put myself in their shoes for a moment and think, imagine having a business that's 15,000 kilometres away at arm's length. Uh, wouldn't you want to know everything that goes on? You, you, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know if, you know, if there was a tree snake out in the garden? Like... It, I shared everything with Tim uh, to the point where we would email each other sometimes a dozen times a day, um, talk regularly, SMS regularly. There was nothing ever hidden from from those folks. And I think that trust relationship was a big part of what got us to being DJR Team Penske in the first place and then ultimately the success we had as a team. The foundations, um, once you, you launch into this, I mean, everyone was massively excited about it. And we were equally excited, Ryan, about the return of, uh, of Marcus Ambrose. The, the appearance at Homebush at the end of 14 wasn't necessarily, um, you know, what he wanted. But we were like, OK, let's just, let's just wait here. And then, bang, he gets the thing in the shootout at Adelaide round one. And we thought, far out. It's on here. He's, he's back. And... It wasn't to be, he made a very difficult phone call to Roger to ultimately, um, after a, a difficult Grand Prix, to, to pull the pin. What was that process like from from your side, um, trying to uh, keep Marcus, or was it? A, did you just sense that he'd made up his mind, it was it was not savable? What did you think? It's, it's quite interesting reflecting on it. So we had Jeff Schwartz out, out here as our team manager, and he really set up the Penske way for us and showed us the way that Penske go about business and go about racing and he's still just a wonderful friend he and Annette are just wonderful people and he and Marcus had formed a bond because as as exactly as you said from very early on in 2013 discussions had been had and Marcus had given Roger his word that if Roger entered supercars he'd drive for him but what but the decision that Marcus had made he and Sonia had made already is that regardless of what Roger did they were going to pull a pin and come home in, at the end of 2014. That was the plan. So he had he he had, he he was in this mindset and had been in this in this mindset and in this and, and been living this challenging life for 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 a number of years of doing 38 odd race weekends a year, going from place to place with the two girls with the family, 
and he'd had enough. He, he, he was, he, I think it's a shame he was never given a car that he could have shown his true talents in. I think that if he was ever in a Penske Ford or in a Penske Dodge, he would have run, won oval races. He would have won more road course races. He would have found his way into, um, into the, uh, into the, uh, into the sprint or whatever the hell they call it now, the playoffs. <laughs> I think there's no question that he had that talent, but, and, 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 and by the same token, in 2014, when he came out to Homebush, after he drove the car at Lakeside, he did a rides day at Lakeside before he did a test day at QR. I think it became apparent to him the current car that he was driving compared to what he was driving last time around in, what, 2005, it was completely different. These cars you could trail brake, whereas his his default style when he was driving supercars was basically pull the thing up, get through the apex and jump on the loud pedal. And, and basically do it better than anyone else. So the style, the, the driving style had changed a lot. But the engineers were of a universal belief, particularly after Adelaide, not only did he still have it, but with time, this guy was going to be able to win races. He just did, he simply resigned himself to the fact that he wasn't prepared to put in that time, particularly in a one-car team. He didn't think that he would be doing the team just as he, in fact, thought that he would be doing us a disservice to stay in the seat, despite the fact that we had all the faith in the world in him. He didn't think that it was appropriate in that scenario. But he did say that if, if we had been a two-car team and if he didn't have that pressure to perform and if he had the ability and the capacity to grow and to understand the car and learn the car, that, uh, that the situation might have been different, but it is what it is and it was what it was. And the thing I'm most pleased about is that we were able to involve him in the launch of the Mustang supercar in 2019 when he drove. We actually had Ford air freighted out a current spec NASCAR for him to do demo laps in, which I know he just absolutely loved doing. And then when he, uh, when he, when he helped fill in as part of the supercars telecast at Simmons Plains, as soon as I caught wind, because I wasn't at the event, as soon as I caught wind that he wanted to have a steer of the car, I was like, okay, let's make it happen. So we, we, we got him a helmet, got him a race suit, uh, got him all sorted, and uh, and he got to have a steer of, 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 of one of our current cars, which was, you know, which was effectively a championship winning car and a race winning car, and and get to get to get to have at least a, an understanding of his own mind of the development progress that we had made, and 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 really understand how the car had developed. From, uh, from the time that he was last in it proper in 2015. So I was really pleased to be able to give him that opportunity and, and certainly if, uh, if, if, uh, if, 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 and, if and when he and Sonia and the family find themselves in Queensland again and we're doing a driver eval day or we've got a rides day on, um, he's more than welcome to uh, put himself behind the wheel again just, uh, just for the hell of it. And I think what he's doing, and sorry to interrupt Rusty, I think what he's doing too, with, with with Gary Rogers, with junior drivers and with TA2 in particular is, is really commendable because he's got a real passion for the sport. The fire's still in the belly and he wants to help young kids from he wants to he wants young kids to benefit from his experience and he also wants to obviously help them uh, help them achieve their full potential. So it's a real credit to him. I think that I think that anyone who can have success in a chosen field and then elect elects on their own and on their own accord to give back, I uh, I have I have the high. I hold those people in the highest regard. I do too, and I reckon he quietly jump at that opportunity to have a little little steer at some stage too. Hey, 
in what then follows in this incredible building process and the you know the race wins and titles that we saw in recent years the the first sprinkling of of uh, uh Scott McLaughlin where did that for you first kind of appear on the on the radar and how did that that well there's a few different versions of the story there's there's so so Tim Tim Sindrick says that Marcus put Scott on their radar uh and and, and yep. that, that that's probably his recollection um but when we first started our discussions I sent through a document quite a comprehensive document on a review of all the teams uh, a review of DJR's strengths and weaknesses and a review of all of the drivers that, w- that was basically a five, looking five years into the future. And number one on the list was uh, Scott McLaughlin. And Steve Brayback and I had become friends with Wayne McLaughlin and we'd started talking to him. We'd, we actually initially started talking to him in 2012 because we were hoping to try and sign him in, before Gary did <laughs> to join us in 2013, but it wasn't to be. And we were fortunate enough to get Chaz in the end and it worked out okay. Um, but we had discussions. I mean, we were having discussions with Wayne early on and then ultimately uh, with Andrew Croxford, who was looking after some of, uh, some of Scott's, Scott's things uh, a bit later down the track. But, uh, but he, was, he was very much from the early days someone who we looked at as a potential star of the future. And there's no doubt that he's delivered on his promise. Most definitely. What's your... Quickly before we move on to some of the great things that you, you and Penske achieved, what's your what's your report card on his performance this year in in IndyCar? I just thought he, you know, on balance, hit it out of the park. It was a superb debut season, wasn't it? I completely agree. Uh, I mean, the thing wasn't have. I mean, he you didn't have to scrape the things off of the catch vents at ovals. Uh, he, you know, he had a couple of incidents and things like that. But but generally, I thought that his racecraft was very good. Uh, he's clearly still coming to grips with the red sidewall tyre, but given how well we know he is over one lap and how incredible and brilliant he was at qualifying and qualifying a supercar, that once he gets his head around that, I think it'll be scary how many uh, P1 stickers he gets on the uh, on the wing end plate of his uh, of his Delara IndyCar. But uh, but I, I think that he did as he certainly did as well as could be expected, and to have won um, Rookie of the Year over someone as well credentialed as Romain Grosjean, uh, and, and especially given that, uh, that Scott, I think, had only competed in two open-wheel events his entire life prior to the one uh, last year, um, the, the one last, uh, the final event of uh, the season last year straight after Bathurst, I thought it was pretty extraordinary. But uh, he was sensible. He's got a great mentor in the legend that is Rick Mears. He's surrounded by good people and he's a kid who's smart enough to listen. So there's no doubt in my mind that he'll be success, he's successful simply because his work ethic and his commitment won't allow for anything less. I auditioned to be the voice of Alexa. Didn't get the gig. Why? They said I was too robotic and didn't show enough genuine emotion. Sad face emoji. Crying face emoji. Genuine emotion emoji. You get the business collectively as a group out of trouble. You get the automotive uh, icon in Roger Penske involved. All these building blocks, the sum of many parts that you talked about in life before start coming together. What's the moment, the, the first sweet taste of success where you really thought, 
this is incredible. This has absolutely come to together here and you could not rest on your laurels, but just take a moment to go, we're doing it. We, we, it's it's a winning machine, a winning combination. Well, there, there were a couple of false starts. So in New Zealand in 2015, Scott Pye got a podium and, and Roger was there for that race. So that we would, that was just, I mean, that was unbelievable. That just, it was a sense of relief that we, we, were, we were making progress because it had been a really, really tough year. But third place for Roger Penske is the same as second. It's, the, you know, you, you, you haven't won and it's binary. You've won or you haven't. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty simple. <laughs> uh, there's no, no, no prizes for coming second. So, so <laughs> there's a great story there of, uh, of I think it was Perth that year where Roger was out because uh, um, MTU have a lot of customers in, in the mining sector. So it was an opportunity to meet with a lot of the Penske business customers. So he came out and uh, we finished in the 20s and, uh, and on the ride back to the airport, Roger made a remark about... Uh, how that wasn't something he was used to. <laughs> it was maybe a little bit more colourful than that. But, uh, but certainly certainly New Zealand at uh, Pookie in 2015, that podium, I thought, okay, we're, we're, we're just, I think this, is, this could be the start. And then the following year we, when we went back, because we, 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 we had a DNF at Bathurst, which was, which was unfortunate. Uh, Marcus wasn't quite as quick as some of the other co-drivers in we got him out of sequence with the Coast, so he was up against Maine, so we lost a bit of track position, which was ultimately going to hurt our end result in the race anyway, but we had a power steering failure that put uh, poor Scotty Pye on the wall uh, at the great, basically at the highest G-load you can, uh, under, at the highest G-loads we have in our championship. And let me tell you, there's nothing worse than the responsibility and the responsibility to first... Have a have a, have clarity on the safety of your driver when they've been in a huge accident like that. Make sure they're safe. Then follow up with their respective partners and family. Meet them at the medical centre. Follow them to the hospital. Make sure they've got the appropriate care and all. Like my whole world stops, and I think it's the same for, for for any team boss. My whole world stops if one of my cars has been in an incident and potentially someone could be injured. And Scotty cracked a couple of ribs and then at the following event at Gold Coast, he had to have a nerve block put in and I went, went with him to that because, again, I, I think that duty of care to drivers and even to staff if they're injured, if, if that happens, it's, I mean, and it does happen from time to time, it has to be, you have to drop everything to focus on that. So, so prior to that, after that Bathurst weekend, because we were competitive, uh, again, strategy put us out of contention for what could have been a podium. The car was fast enough for one and then ultimately having the power steering failure. But that potential was enough to convince Roger to expand to two cars for 2016. Then come opening round 2016, we get pole position on Saturday and pole position on Sunday. And that Sunday and I'm thinking, I think uh, I think this could be the start of something here. And <laughs> just, to give you more, just to give you more of the story... I, I had shingles. Uh, I had shingles the week of the Adelaide 500 in 2016, so I didn't plan on going. And all of a sudden I was on my way to see an ophthalmologist because uh, there was a concern that I had a, I might have had a shingles sore in my eye. So I was on my way to see an ophthalmologist to just make sure that there wasn't any optic nerve damage or anything needed to be done. 
And all of a sudden, my phone was just ding, 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 lighting up like a Christmas tree. And I'm thinking, what the hell's going on? And my first thought was we'd had an accident because I knew it was qualifying. I thought we've written the car off. Oh, I hope so. I hope the driver's okay. You know what? Hmm, okay. Well, I'm just going to just leave. I'm just, I'm going to get to where I need to go and I'll just check the phone. And I checked the phone. Scott Pye got pole position. I couldn't believe it. And at first, and at first I thought it was a G up, but I had about a hundred text messages of all these people saying congratulations. So I was on the next flight to Adelaide. <laughs> <laughs> So I saw the ophthalmologist, said it was all good, um, spoke to spoke to my doctor, All shing- and shingles is not a fun thing, but everything had crusted over. I was not at risk of putting anyone, I was not at risk of spreading shingles, <laughs> shingles throughout uh, metropolitan Adelaide, so I jumped on a plane and away I went. <laughs> and then the following day, Fabian got pole. So we had both poles, but, uh, but uh, yeah, the race outcome, let's talk about something else. But uh, like I said, there are a couple of false dawns, but... Uh, when it really hit us, I mean, in that 2016 year, that was a great building year for us. And it was the first year where we developed all our own bits. So prior to that, we were, we were, we were, we were basically, we basically had a Tickford car with a DJR Moztec engine. Uh, but we went to our own front suspension, which was a big game changer for us. It meant that we weren't relying, relying on other setups and we weren't limited by what we could do from, uh, uh, we weren't limited in terms of what we could experiment with based on the hardware that we had at our disposal. So it meant we could we could do different setups and try different things and try different geometries, different geometries and things of that nature. So we developed all of that. And in fact, at Homebush, the same car, the same cars that raced at Homebush in 2016 were the same cars that raced in 2017 at Adelaide that were, you know, podium contenders. I think we scored second and there was no components that changed. So Lula Lacroix and Scotty joined us at the start of 2017, but the car itself was the same. The mechanical, all of the, all of the, all of the mechanical componentry was all of the same. It wasn't until the end and the latter part of 2017 when we had additional developments to, to put on the car, but we were super fast almost from the get-go in 2017 and then Winning the first race at the Grand Prix, that was uh, that was that was uh, that was quite a highlight, and it really just set the ball rolling. But we made too many unforced errors that cost us the championship that year. I don't, I mean, I think that uh, the fact that we're still in with, you know, we had the fastest car, we should have won it. We won the team's championship, which we did. We didn't win the drivers' championship, which we should have. That's more down, I think, to 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 the DNF at Bathurst than anything that happened at Newcastle. Um, but. Where I do give Scott enormous credit is it's, and as and you know this as well as anyone, how rare it is for a sportsman or a sports person of any kind to bounce back from, from snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, having your heart broken to a million pieces to coming back and winning a championship. It was nothing short of extraordinary. And, and in his book, Road to Redemption, he talks a lot about his relationship with Emma Murray, who's a sports psychologist, and has worked closely. And in fact, they were connected through the mutual friend, Jack Rewalt, who plays for Richmond and, and uh, Emma looks after Richmond. She's a wonderful, wonderful person. And she was able to turn this kid into an absolute winning machine. And and she was really, uh, at both both her and, and Scott's relationship with his wife, Carly, were, were, were no doubt the the pillars of, of him being able to bounce back so successfully and just so brilliantly in 2018. What is the proudest 
achievement of the lot, do you think? Ooh, that's tough. Um, that's tough. I think the I think the re-establishing Dick Johnson Racing in, at the end of twenty twenty would be in my top five. Uh, the 2018 championship winning against a car that was clearly better than ours uh, was, would be in my top five. Uh, delaying Gen 3 would be in my top five. And also uh, also being the first carbon neutral supercars team would be in my top five. So there's, there's, there's four out of my fifth. I'm not going to say the fifth because it's uh, the, f- the fifth is one that's... Um, the fifth is one that's uh, it's it's it it, it 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 it's 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 almost boastful. It's not meant to be, and 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 my role my role in the process is is not widely known. So I'll, I'll keep I'll keep that one to myself. But suffice to say, I, I've I have given some thought, uh, particularly just reflecting on the season and and the fact that I haven't been able to go to the races. Of and and I'm also putting pen to paper and 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 putting some uh, words together for a book that will come out next year um, that will no doubt be on the discount shelves the following week. No, it won't. Uh, but, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, that's four of my top five, yeah. 2018. Oh, sorry. Well, actually, I'd even change that. I'd, I'd, instead of instead of the hidden fifth one, I'd say the bringing Mustang and Ford back into the sport. So they, they, they would be my top five. Ford, Ford and Mustang, the 2018 championship win, delaying Gen 3, uh, being carbon neutral, and Penske. I think that might even be different to the to the five that I listed before, but they're they're, they're the top achievements anyway. I, I might have to I might have to put pen to paper and, and actually put together the definitive list. All are incredible achievements, mate. Absolutely incredible achievements. I don't know. You may not want to um, to to cover this. Um, Fabs, I, I sense uh, when he came on the pod recently has, has moved on and doesn't want, really want to cover it. For others, it remains, a, you know, still a pretty emotive subject and that is Bathurst 2019. What happened is well documented. Um, what I'm kind of interested in um, with the benefit of time is how you you frame it or perhaps compartmentalise it now. So it's something I still live with to this day. It's caused me tremendous health issues, um, it's it's been quite a journey and it's been a healing journey in a lot of respects. But the reality is I could tell the story, Rusty, there'll be half of your listeners who will believe it and there'll be a half who will never believe it. But uh, suffice to say, I've been successful in some um, defamation action based on some comments and some commentary that people have made based on my role in it. But... Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I do take responsibility for it happening because it happened due to my negligence more than anything else. And the reason why I say that is because it was an unusual pit stop. It was an unusual double stack because at the time the 12 car was overheating and we thought that the thing was going to cook itself at any point in time. And at that point in time, we'd had the engine come out of 17 Saturday after the shootout, which also was having similar issues. So we were seeing the same thing in the telemetry. We were seeing the same issues with oil and water temps going up. And we thought the thing was, we thought the thing was eating water and we thought that we could have been in all sorts of trouble. 
So we started putting plans together to put, we had a pressurised water vessel, which I was helping Josh Silcock filling. So I wasn't where I needed to be. So normally what would happen is, uh, normally what would happen under a double stack or under a safety car is that as part of the strategy planning and it happens before the event and in real time during the event, you set your lap windows for when a double stack would be called by default um, if a certain lap count is reached. And we'd reached a lap count where it was a default double stack. But when that was called, the engineer for car 12 was on pit on the pit wall. And at that point in time, we didn't run an intercom system that allowed for multi-channels to be heard at the same time. So he was talking to... So the safety car had been called by Tim Schenken and Mark was talking to Fabian on the radio saying debris, debris, I don't know what, I still to this day don't know why he said debris, neither does he, uh, but he said, look, we don't know where it is. And the reason why he said, I don't know where it is, is because while he was talking to Fabian, he was standing out on the pit wall without access to the intercom, without access to a big screen, and he spoke over the top of Tim when Tim said, we have a car off at the last, last, last corner. So while that was happening, at that point in time, he was on the top of the he was on the top of the hill, and the seventeen, he the seventeen was the seventeen and the uh, eighty eight were quite quite a way ahead. I was helping Josh fill up the water and fill fill up and pressure the water vestibule to put water into the car. So I was not in a position where I could see the car slow on Conrod because if I if I had seen it, I would have jumped on the radio and said, you know, go faster. It would have been somewhat more colourful than that. And in fact, after the fact, I said to, I believe it was Andre who was behind him, I actually said to him, and I said it jokingly, but I almost, but, but, but only half jokingly, why didn't you put, why didn't you send him? Because there was no reason for the car to be going that slow down Conrod. In fact, we thought that the car had stopped. So when the 17 came into pit lane, I was still, again, and this is where I, where I state as the director of the team, as the team principal at the time, I was negligent. I was not where I needed to be, where I could have intervened. I was still assisting, again, because it's just my default natural inclination, particularly when we've got a problem, I want to know the problem. And part of that too is to relay to key stakeholders. I mean, Roger was there, for goodness sake. So I had Roger and DJ there. I wanted to make sure that I knew exactly what was going on to be able to relay it to them in real time. And then I remember both Roger and Dick asking me afterwards, what the hell happened? And I didn't know. And the first time I saw it, the first time I saw the replay of it was basically when I did the interview live with Murph. So I saw the replay and just went, oh, Jesus. And then got the tap on the shoulder and I'm live to air doing an interview just going, <laughs> like a deer in the headlights looking like a complete idiot. But my, yeah, we honestly thought the car had stopped. And so much, so much so when the 17 entered pit lane, Ben Croak, who's the car controller and, and was team manager, now team principal, he, was, he spoke to Fabian. So he spoke to Fabian. Fabian was at the chase. But our expectation was that he was right behind the 17. He was going to be basically only a few seconds behind him. So he said, mate, you're going to be double stacking, pull up alongside Red Bull or something to that effect. At that point in time, he was in the chase, not, not in pit lane. So when the 17 rolls in and the 12 doesn't, we're all going, what's going on? And, yeah, our initial thought was the thing had cooked itself and he basically had parked on the side of Conrad. 
But then again, later when seeing the footage, it was it was a it it uh, yeah I, I was lost for words, and I went I went and then went through went through quite a comprehensive process just in terms of trying to understand what the ramifications of that were. Did it impact the outcome of the race? My personal belief is that it impacted from third back. You know, when we finished that that cycle of pit stops, the 88 was ahead of the 17 and basically the 97 was behind. 17 and 97 opted to save fuel and hope for a safety car. After a couple of laps, the 88 said, bugger it, let's boot up a lead and march on. So when looking at it from that perspective, I don't believe it changed who, who came first and who, who came second, but I do believe it impacted who came third and lower. But my biggest regret, and I'll never let it happen again, was that I was in the wrong position. I, I was not doing my job by not being where I should have been to have been able to react and intervene in that situation. And since then, we've had an, we have an intercom now that, that has all of the key people connected. We have easy... The ability for us to communicate with each other is significantly enhanced as a consequence of what happened that day. Because I think if we had that same system then, it wouldn't have happened. There would have been the capacity for one of the junior engineers or one of the junior woodchucks who was at the data stand who was able to see the car speak. Because the car speak, the car was doing about 100 k's or something like that down Conrad. Would have seen it and would have been able to flag it to someone's attention and, a, and, a, and, and we could have intervened accordingly. How much did the fallout, the, the heat around this whole subject affect Roger? Well, Roger was in the same boat as me. I mean, after like after, after the cars had both stopped, he said to me, what happened? And I said, I honestly don't know. I said, I need to find out. So it was a, oh, it was a few minutes after that we were reviewing back and scrolling through to and saw that the car had slowed down, like and slowed down incredibly so. And then it was after that that we saw that replay and knew for sure what had happened. And, and to be honest, I was, I was horrified by it, to be honest with you. What about the fact that you as a group now, I mean, um, you've talked before about COVID, the impact that, that it had and, and Rogers, you know, and the Penske group's decision to, to move on. Um, as a group, you have to. You still, I think it's clear, um, Ryan, from the, the approach in pit lane and what you do, you retain some of the... The Penske touches, that's obvious. Um, do we miss him uh, and, and the, you know, the Penske involvement in the sport? Oh, for sure. I mean, like I said, he's, he's, he's up there with Enzo Ferrari in terms of legendary motorsport icons. I mean, he's a, in terms of what he's achieved in motorsport, he's almost without peer. So we're, we're, we're better having had Roger Penske in our championship as, as much as, as we're the lesser for not having him as part of it today. But there's no question that our team will continue the efforts equals results mantra and the, the, the adage that uh, if you get the preparation right, the rest will follow. And we want to continue to be the benchmark team on the track and off the track. Uh, the results this year were part of a building year and, and a lot of changes for us in terms of bringing in new drivers. And we, were, we've, we, we clocked up uh, six wins and a number of podiums. Anton got the pole award, so there's plenty of promise as we lead into next year, which we're really, really excited about. But it goes without saying the quality and calibre of our team we we hope to maintain for a very long time. And that's part of what Carbon Neutral is all about. It's part of uh, about what our involvement with charity is all about. We've got this unbelievable platform of people who are passionate about our team, 
passionate about what we do, uh, we need to take advantage of that platform for good. And it simply can't be to line our own pockets. It simply can't be to, you know, for our own amusement, simply to go racing. We have to think bigger than that and use and leverage the platform that we have for good. And I've, I've, I've said before many times that, to me, it's a moral, ethical and a social responsibility to, to run a sports team because we're in the entertainment business first and foremost. If you're not entertaining, you're not in business. I think that goes without saying. But we want to ensure that we provide absolute, absolute, uh, you know, ten, tenfold return of investment to our commercial partners and that, our, and that we're an organisation that our supporters can be proud of. They can, be, they can wear their Shell V-Power Racing Team polo shirt like I am today and be proud to do so. And that's, that's, that's the culture that we want to have and that's the team that we have. And that all stem, I mean, all of that comes back to Dick and Jilly, really. I mean, they're the two who have been around for all of them. And the team started as the people's team off the back of just race fans, people watching the 1980 Bathurst 1000, calling up Channel 7 and offering up this bloke who'd taken a second mortgage on his house money so he could keep going racing and take it up to Peter Brock. And even Plastic Pemberton saw the sort of potential of having a, you know, with, with, with Moff now in a rotary with the RX-7s, even Pembos, even Plastics, rather, sorry, I know another Pembos, so probably even Plastics saw the potential of having uh, having someone like Dick flying the, the, the blue oval Ford flag. So the, being the people's team and having that, 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 that social, ethical, moral responsibility I think is so critically important. And I think it's what, it's, it's what our supporters expect of us. Couple to finish. The car for you, whether it be from Dick Johnson Racing, from the DJR Tim Penske period. There's some there's a couple of special ones in all of that, but is there what's the one for you? Um I'd have to say the 2018 championship winning FGX Falcon, because it's the last Falcon. It's a championship that we won through incredibly hard work. That was a that was that was the hardest toughest championship of all of them. Um, that, that's, that's the car. Um, you know, I've, the, I've got a massive soft spot for Sierras. Um, we've got Paul Linfoot building a, a replica Sierra using, the, using DJR's original show car from the 80s. And he's, he's basically the, 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 the best Sierra expert, Sierra RS500 Cosworth Group A expert in the world. So that, to have him build it, I mean, he couldn't be in better hands. So we, we we look forward to getting that car back at some point because that'll be a I reckon that'll be a, a real thrill out at ride days when up against potentially Gen three cars and our current cars and the and the Sierra with a passenger seat in it. I reckon that'd be a hell of a thrill. But uh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, sorry to sorry to interrupt, but yeah, definitely the twenty eighteen FGX championship car and uh, the Sierras and, and and as I mentioned before, the the EL Falcon. I think that's that's just a I've just got a soft spot for that car. It just looks so good. Now, speaking of soft spots, you've got some great memorabilia too, mate. I think from Senna helmets, there's there's Schumacher and Weber um, race attire in addition to supercar stuff and some beautiful artwork, I should point out too. Have you got your eye on something or is there another one that you will just never let go of? Is there a piece of um, memorabilia that's that's close to your heart for a reason? There's a – I'm a huge fan of Tazio Nuvolari uh, who is considered the – the best there was, the best and the best there was, and the best there ever will be. 
Um, he's an Italian driver. He drove for Alfa Romeo and uh, drove for Auto Union. This is all pre-Formula One. And I won't say which trophy he won, but he, he won... Um, he won Targa Florio and won a number of Grand Prix, and, and, and yeah, he's just a, just an absolute legend. And and, and a symbol, one of his per, his personal symbol was a, a, a turtle with uh, the letters TN in it. And I've been to the Tazio Nuvolari Museum at Manteo in Italy, which is which is just spectacular. But I own two of um, two trophies that Tazio has won. <laughs> Tazio won that are of. Uh, significance in terms of motorsport that uh, that will be taken from my cold dead hands. They are, I want to be buried with them. They're, they're, they're pretty special to me. Very cool. You've alluded to. <laughs> Actually, I probably won't be buried with them. They're, they're, they're too important. They, they need to be. They, they should be on display for everyone to see. They're pretty special. They're pretty special items. Amazing. Hey, you've alluded to your health a little bit during our chat here. You're not big on talking about that. I, I understand it. Probably I want to just finish by saying, mate, are, are you okay health-wise at the moment? Because you missed Bathurst and we would love to have seen you there. Yeah, I was really, I was I was gutted to gutted to not be able to attend, but uh, I'm, I'm fully expecting to be at all 13 events next year from Newcastle on and I just can't wait. But, uh, but no, health, health is good. I just need to look after myself a little bit more, which uh, I'm not very good at doing. <laughs> and uh, I think that if if I if I do that, I'll be I'll be just fine. But uh, can't wait to get to Newcastle. We've got a big break, big 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 break between now and March, and uh, plenty of time to, to to think about how we can uh, how we can come out come out firing on all cylinders. Really looking forward to it. It's been a wonderful chat, mate. Thank you so much. I wish we were face to face for it. <laughs> Congratulations on everything you've done from um, you know amazing work in the political arena to channeling some of the learnings of that um, into motor racing and to being um, a very significant cog in the in the machine um, that has that has achieved so much and I know you um, you do some great things philanthropically as well in the area of charity and so on and, and for that you to be um, you to be congratulated as well thank you so much for talking to us no thanks Rusty it's it's been an absolute pleasure and May I just say, uh, a lot of people don't know this about you, but it comes across whenever you're on telly. But for those who know you and have the privilege of calling you a friend, you, you're one of the most kindest and, and most compassionate people I've ever met. You've always got a nice word to say about everyone. You always take the time to see how people are doing and to check in. You're, just, you're a great bloke, mate. And uh, it's been a, a, a pleasure to be, to be part of Rusty's Garage. And, uh, and it's an even greater pleasure to call you a friend. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series editor and producer is Ed Gooden. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. If you've got a guest suggestion, get in touch with me via social media. The Garage. It's where a journey begins with a tank full of passion-fueled stories. Listener. Testing two one two one two. Mate, I'm good to go. <laughs> the voice memo's yeah, got a beautiful, beautiful. I can also do this one as well. The former <laughs> president. He's a he's a he's a piece of work. This guy, but let me tell you, Greg Greg Rust, Greg Rust is a great guy. I've known about him for a long time. People say they say to me, they say, Mr. Press, Greg Rust is one of the best podcasters. <laughs> <laughs>
best broadcasters ever. He's just one of the best there ever is. So naturally, I agreed to come on the show. I had to. I just had to do it. This is fantastic. It's awesome. Listener.